Cascadia was born of fire and ice. This string of 19 volcanic peaks stretch from Canada to California. Sulfur, lava, ocean mist, evergreens, and fog co-mingle to create one of the world's most haunting, mysterious places. Rumor has it a subterranean network of lava tubes connect the mountains underground. From ancient alien civilizations to Sasquatch to legends of the Watchers to underground libraries guilting gold to unexplained missing persons, Curious Cat is exploring the origins of these dark rumors in search of truth. Yes, folks, lace up your hiking boots. We are venturing into the woods of the Cascade Mountain Range for an unforgettable Season 3. Find all Cascadia episodes wherever you stream Curious Cat on the regular Curious Cat feed. Imagine an earthquake so powerful it shakes an entire continent and shrinks a chain of mountains. A quake so powerful it causes a tsunami of epic proportions halfway across the globe. It happened, but that event was largely lost to history for over 300 years. The 1700 Cascadian earthquake is the most epic natural disaster you've never heard of. Let's get into it. The Cascade Mountain Range runs north into Canada and south through Washington, Oregon, and into California. Sitting on the legendary Ring of Fire, this chain of 19 mountains was born in the belly of the earth, a byproduct of the friction between the Juan de Fuca and Cascadia Plates. 300 years ago, the entire west coast of North America quaked. When the Juan de Fuga Plate became unstuck, it slipped beneath the Cascadia Plate and jarred an entire continent, devastating coastal communities and forever etching itself into the oral histories of native peoples. Stories of a battle between good and evil, the Thunderbird and the Whale, are still retold today. That was over three centuries ago, and we know the exact time the earthquake occurred. So let's go back a moment in our mental time machines. The year is 1700. You're a member of one of multiple indigenous tribes that reside in the mouthways of streams and rivers along the North American coastline. It's January, and the winter sun was filtered through the clouds for most of the day. It's long since slipped below the horizon. The community fire is dying out. The young are rubbing their tired eyes and clinging to the laps and legs of their mamas. The community quietly tucks away beneath warm layers to sleep. All is quiet. The scent of lingering wood smoke, salty ocean spray, and traces of the day blur into dreams. Then suddenly... The land beneath shakes and rolls. While some remain asleep, the shaking infects their dreams, but others grow alert thanks to a rush of adrenaline. 
The quaking continues for what feels like hours, though it's been a minute or so. Adults pick up groggy babies and move away from shelters, while the dirt beneath their feet shimmies, liquidating, turning into a sandy, liquid slough. The shaking stops with as much certainty as it began. As the community makes sense of what just occurred, they stare in shock at the buildings that have sunk, in some cases swallowed whole by the earth. As the adrenaline recedes, there's an uneasy calm, a long exhale, when a giant wave, five times taller than the tallest shelter, high as an ancient cedar, inundates the coastline. The devastating waves will continue on and on for several hours, and the only survivors will be those that ran for higher ground. All else is reclaimed by the mighty ocean. You'll find out later that the only survivors were 75 feet above the waterline. That's how massive the tsunami was. You'll hug those around you, and when morning comes, you'll build again and tell the story of an unmatched destructive power so that future generations will never forget and always be prepared. Here's some essential facts about the 1700 earthquake. January 26, 1700, 9 p.m. Pacific Time. This very precise time confirms oral histories shared by a multitude of Cascadia indigenous people from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada to Northern California. We know the exact time because across the Pacific Ocean, Japan recorded a massive tsunami. In recent years, modern-day experts studied tree rings along the west coast of the United States and confirmed the time of this historic megaquake, but I'll get into that further a little later. The estimated damage of the 1700 Cascadia earthquake is almost impossible to fathom, but the power and impact of the event is best seen in the actions of North American tribes. They reconstructed their most important buildings— up and away from the coastline. I'm speaking of centuries-old longhouses. They chose to move them upland so that they would survive any subsequent earthquakes. This tells you everything, doesn't it? Hundreds of years later, they keep the imminent danger in mind, and I'll share some of their legends that continue to be retold to keep the tragedy fresh in the minds of the younger generations. I'll share a few with them right now. So Anne Finkbeiner authored this incredible piece for Hakai Magazine on the stories told by the indigenous people about the 1700 earthquake. I've linked to it in the show notes so you can read the whole article. It's titled, The Great Quake and the Great Drowning. Megaquakes have periodically rocked North America's Pacific Northwest. Indigenous people told terrifying stories about the devastation, but refused to leave. The Yurok people of Northern California's account personified the earthquake, and here is their account loosely told. In the year 1700, on January 26th at night, Earthquake was running up and down the coast. His feet were heavy, and when he ran, he shook the ground so much it sank down and the ocean poured in. The earth would quake and quake again and again, and the water was flowing all over. 
the people retreated to the top of a hill wearing headbands of woodpecker plumage so they could perform a jumping dance that would keep earthquake away and restore their normal lives. But then they looked down and they saw the water covered their village and the entire coast. They knew then that the world would never be right again. Hey everybody, Karen Rontowski here. I hate to interrupt the Curious Cat podcast, one of my favorites, but if you want to double your paranormal fun when you're done here, come check out my show, Paranormal Karen. I interview exorcists, demonologists, healers, psychics, really anyone that can make a family gathering uncomfortable is on my show. If you want to see everything I do, go to KarenRontowski.com. And I know you're thinking that sounds hard to spell. Well, it is. I have misspelled it on hundreds of tax forms. So if that doesn't work, for you, go to psychicstandup.com or paranormalkaren.com. There you can find my Patreon. You can book a tarot reading. You can take a tarot class. You can find everything, including my stand-up comedy clips. That's right. I've been doing stand-up for 30 years. If you go to those places, you can also see my psychic stand-up show where I mix psychic and tarot readings. Yes, the future never looked so funny. So check me out at KarenRontowski.com, ParanormalKaren.com, or PsychicStandup.com. And can someone please find me a marketing person to put all this in one place? Now back to the show. Up the coast in Washington State, that same night, Thunderbird and Whale had a terrible fight, making the mountains shake. The disturbance uprooted trees, said the Quileute and Ho people. They said the ocean rose up and covered the whole land. Farther north still, in Canada, on Vancouver Island, dwarfs who lived in a mountain invited a person to dance around their drum. The guest accidentally kicked the drum and got earthquake foot, said the Nuchanuth people. After that, every step he took caused an earthquake. According to the Hu'eot people, who are part of the Nuchanuth, the land shook and the ocean flooded in, and the people didn't even have time to wake up and get into their canoes. Very fast, everything drifted away. Everything was lost and gone. The Macaw people in Washington detailed the 1700 tsunami. A long time ago, but not at all a very remote period, the ocean receded quickly, then rose up again until it submerged Cape Flattery. Canoes were stranded in trees and many people died. Team of anthropologists, geologists, and indigenous scholars led by geologist Ruth Ludwin of the University of Washington took 40 stories collected from native groups along the entire Cascadia subduction zone. They compared those narratives to the collected data about the 1700 quake and confirmed the whole coast had been telling stories about the event. The Cowichan people on Vancouver Island, the Squamish in southern British Columbia, and the Macaw each had stories about the earth shaking so violently that no one could stand, or the houses falling apart, or rock slides coming out of the Cascades and burying whole villages, and the flooding. They talked about the flooding that killed many people. From the Toloa people in Northern California, One autumn, the earth shook and the water began rising. People began running, and when the water reached them, they turned into snakes. 
But a girl and a boy from the village, both adolescents, outran the water by running to the top of a mountain where they built a fire to keep warm. After ten days, they went back down and the houses they'd lived in were gone. All that was left was sand, and all the people and animals were lying on the ground dead. The boy found food for the girl and then set out to look for people and a place to live. The only people he found were dead. The boy came back and said he could find no one else for either of them to marry, so they'd better marry each other. They built a house and over time had babies. Many years and many generations later, there were many people. Everywhere a man and a woman could live dwelled a family. So the surviving boy and girl had, generations earlier, been successful repopulating the Talawa people. Sadly, in large part due to epidemics that later came, like smallpox, it's estimated that anywhere from 35 to 95 percent of the stories were lost because the storytellers themselves died, making the surviving stores, stories all the more precious. From the Ho people of Washington state, there was a great storm and hail flashes of lightning in the darkened, blackened sky and a great crashing thunder noise everywhere. There were also a shaking, jumping up and trembling of the earth beneath and a rolling up of the great waters. Yunker, an anthropologist at the University of Oregon, had heard at least one of these stories growing up. He was about to leave home to begin his graduate work when his uncle took him to Sundown Mountain along the Oregon coast and up to a high plateau where they watched the fog coming off the ocean and moving up through a river valley. You see, Jason, how the fog is coming in, his uncle said. Not all that long ago, a great tide came in the same way. The water rushed up the valleys, drowning the villages and covering the trees. Some people climbed into their canoes, along with long ropes they'd prepared, tied themselves to the tops of the trees and rowed out the flood. Those who hadn't prepared ropes were swept away and never seen again. Yunker thinks his uncle relayed the story so that he could tell others how to prepare, and also to say, make sure to keep your ropes long and your connections to home well-maintained so you can pull yourself back because you really can't separate the past from the present. A final story from Robert Dennis, counselor of the Hu'ayat people, First Nation in British Columbia. When he was 11 or 12, he would visit his great-grandfather, who'd been chief for decades. He'd say, I'm going to tell you things that might be important in your life, and this could happen again. One story he shared was about his great-grandfather, who'd lived at Pochina Bay on the west coast of Vancouver Island. One night, the land shook, and a big wave smashed into the beach, and the people who lived on the bay were all killed. But the people who lived on high ground, the water couldn't reach them, and they came out of the tsunami alive. Dennis believed he'd been told that story so that someday he could tell the story and when he was a leader and responsible for his people, he could save them. Years later, when the Hu'ayat were planning a community center, they first consulted their elders, then chose to build the center not on the lower flats, but on high ground. They still stock it with food and emergency gear. Really preparing, Dennis said, I'm not going to rest. I'm going to keep pushing it so we're ready.
The ground moves and doesn't stop moving. Almost no one survives the beach, so get off of the beach. Go up into the hills, build on high ground. Make sure your children know this. This is what the land does at times. Be safe. Yes, what the indigenous people knew all along, geologists have only known since 1984. I'd like to relay the incredible events that led to the discovery of the 1700 Cascadia earthquake. A comprehensive article written by an accomplished writer, Katherine Schultz, tells the tale of how two researchers put together a 300-year-old puzzle and how that research is teaching us about past natural disasters and helping us to predict and prepare for future events. From the article from the New Yorker magazine, which I have linked to in the show notes, so please read it in its entirety. Most people in the United States know just one fault line by name, the San Andreas Fault, which runs nearly the length of California and is perpetually rumored to be on the verge of unleashing the big one. That rumor's misleading, no matter what the San Andreas ever does. Every fault line has an upper limit to its potency, determined by its length and width and by how far it can slip. For the San Andreas, one of the most extensively studied and best understood fault lines in the world, that upper limit is roughly an 8.2, a powerful earthquake, but because the Richter scale is logarithmic, only 6% as strong as the 2011 event in Japan, for example. North of the San Andreas, however, lies another fault line known as the Cascadia Subduction Zone. It runs for 700 miles off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, beginning near Cape Mendocino, California, continuing along Oregon and Washington, and terminating around Vancouver Island, Canada. The Cascadia part of its name comes from the Cascade Mountain Range, a chain of volcanic mountains that follow the same course 100 or so miles inland. The subduction zone part refers to a region of the planet where one tectonic plate is sliding underneath or subducting another. Tectonic plates are slabs of mantle and crust that in their epochs long drift rearrange the Earth's continents and oceans. Most of the time their movement is slow, harmless, and all but undetectable, she says. Occasionally at the borders where they meet, it's not. She gives this fantastic illustration, and I have to read it verbatim. Take your hands and hold them palms down, middle fingertips touching. Your right hand represents the North American tectonic plate, which bears on its back, among other things, our entire continent from one World Trade Center to the Space Needle in Seattle. Your left hand represents an oceanic plate called the Juan de Fuca, 90,000 square miles in size. This place where they meet is the Cascadia subduction zone. Now, slide your left hand under your right one. That is what the Juan de Fuca plate is doing. It's slipping steadily beneath North America. When you try it, your right hand will slide up your left arm as if you are pushing up your sleeve. That's what North America is not doing. It is stuck, wedged tight against the surface of the other plate. Now, without moving your hands, curl your right knuckles up so that they point toward the ceiling. 
under pressure from Juan de Fuca, the stuck edge of North America is bulging upward and compressing eastward at the rate of respectively 3 to 4 millimeters and 30 to 40 millimeters a year. It can do so for quite a long time because as continental stuff goes, it's young, made of rock that's still relatively elastic. Rocks like people get stiffer as they age, she says, but it cannot do so indefinitely. There's a backstop, the craton, that ancient, unbudgeable mass at the center of the continent, and sooner or later, North America will rebound like a spring. And if on that occasion only the southern part of the Cascadia subduction zone gives away, your first two fingers say the magnitude of a resulting quake will be somewhere between 8.0 and 8.6. Now, that's the big one. If the entire zone gives way at once, an event that seismologists call a full margin rupture, the magnitude will be somewhere between 8.7 and 9.2. That's the very big one. So when the next very big earthquake hits, the northwest edge of the continent from California to Canada and the continental shelf to the Cascades could drop as much as six feet and rebound 30 to 100 feet to the west, losing within minutes all the elevation and compression it's gained over the centuries. Some of that shift will take place beneath the ocean, displacing a huge quantity of seawater. The water will surge upwards into a huge hill, then promptly collapse. Pretty scary, huh? That's what we call the uh, tsunami. Um, the people say the region will be unrecognizable about you know be, if that happens. In the Pacific Northwest, the area of impact could cover some hundred and forty thousand square miles. It would include Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, Portland, Eugene, Salem, and it includes some seven million people. One researcher said, this is one time I'm hoping all the science is wrong and it won't happen for another thousand years. In fact, the science is robust, and one of the chief scientists behind it is Chris Goldfinger. Thanks to work done by him and his colleagues, we now know the odds of the big Cascadia earthquake happening in the next 50 years are roughly 1 in 3. The odds of a very big one are 1 in 10. It's worrisome. 30 years ago, though, this is what's really scary. No one knew that the Cascadia subduction zone had ever produced a major earthquake. 45 years ago, no one even knew it existed. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Here, she goes on to give an example of how Lewis and Clark came to the um, Pacific Northwest, and they found that the land they encountered, they took it at face value. And at face value, it was a fine, fast, cheap, temperate, fertile, and to all appearances, remarkably benign. I love that quote because it's like how good horror movies begin, right? They begin with us letting down our guard. Oh, look at the Pacific Northwest. It's so pine tree and temperate and beautiful and benign. It was a century and a half before anyone had an inkling that the Pacific Northwest was not a quiet place, but a place in a long period of quiet. And it took another 50 years to uncover and interpret the region's seismic history. 
Geology, as even geologists will tell you, is not normally the sexiest of disciplines. It hunkers down with earthly stuff while the glory accrues to the human and to the cosmic, to genetics, neuroscience, physics. But sooner or later, every field has its day. And the discovery of the Cascadia subduction zone stands as one of the greatest scientific detective stories of our time. You know from listening to this podcast that the Cascade Mountain Range sits in the ring of fire. It's a volcanically, seismically volatile swath of the Pacific. And it runs from New Zealand up through Indonesia and Japan and across the ocean to Alaska and down the west coast of America to Chile. The ring of fire, it turns out, is really a ring of subduction zones. Nearly all the earthquakes in the region are caused by continental plates getting stuck on oceanic plates as North America is stuck on Juan de Fuca and then getting abruptly unstuck. I promised you I'd tell you about the Sherlock Holmes and the Dr. Watson of this particular and epic dis- discovery of the Cascadia subduction zone. In the late 1980s, Brian Atwater, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey and a graduate student named David Yamaguchi, found the answer and another major clue in the Cascadia puzzle. Their discovery is best illustrated in a place called the Ghost Forest, a grove of western red cedars on the banks of the Copolis River near the Washington coast. This author paddled out to that ghost forest with Yamaguchi and Atwater in the summer. He described it this way. The cedars are spread out across a low salt marsh on a wide northern bend in the river, long dead but still standing, leafless, branchless, barkless. They're reduced to their trunks and worn to a smooth silver gray, as if they've always carried their own tombstones inside them. What killed the trees in the ghost forest was salt water. It had been assumed that they died slowly as the sea level around them gradually rose and submerged their roots. But by 1987, Atwater, who had found in soil layers layers evidence of sudden land subsidence along the Washington coast, suspected that that was backward, that the trees had died quickly when the ground beneath them plummeted. Yamaguchi took samples of the cedars and found that they had died simultaneously. In tree after tree, the final rings dated to the summer of 1699. That time frame predated by more than a 100 years the written history of the Pacific Northwest. And so by rights, the detective story should have ended there. But it didn't. If you travel 5,000 miles due west from the ghost forest, you reach the northeast coast of Japan. As the events of 2011 made clear, the coast is vulnerable to tsunamis, and the Japanese have been keeping track of tsunamis since at least 599 A.D., In that 1,400-year history, one incident has long stood out for its oddness. Scientists began studying it, and they called it an orphan tsunami. An orphan tsunami because the people of Japan recorded no Um, feeling of an earthquake at the time. So orphan means it didn't have a a describing parent um, event that preceded it. So at approximately nine o'clock at night, 
on January 26, 1700, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake struck the Pacific Northwest, causing sudden land subsidence that drowned coastal forests and, out in the ocean, lifted up a wave half the length of a continent. In one recollection about the tsunami, they described the speed at which the tsunami reached Japan as about the same as a modern-day airplane takes to go to Japan. It was about 10 to 12 hours later for it to cross the sea. And so um, by using when the tsunami hit the shores of Japan, they were able to backtrack and find out the exact time that the Cascadia earthquake took place. So thanks to the work of all of these amazing researchers, they now we now know that the Pacific Northwest has experienced 41 subduction zone earthquakes in the past 10,000 years. If you divide 10,000 by 41, you get 243, which is Cascadia's recurrence interval, the average time that elapses between these mega earthquakes. That time span is dangerous, the author says, because it's both too long and it's long enough for us to unwittingly build an entire civilization on top of our continent's worst fault line and because it's not long enough. Counting from the earthquake of 1700, we're now 315 years into a 243-year cycle. It's possible, she says, to quibble with that number. Recurrence intervals are averages, and averages are tricky. 10 is the average of 9 and 11, but it's also the average of 18 and 2. It is not possible, however, to dispute the scale of the problem. The devastation in Japan in 2011 was the result of a discrepancy between what the best science predicted and what the region was prepared to withstand. The same will hold true in the Pacific Northwest, but here the discrepancy is enormous. The science part is fun, Goldfinger says, and I love doing it, but the gap between what we know and what we should do about it is getting bigger and bigger, and the action really needs to turn to responding. Otherwise, we're going to be hammered. I've been through one of these massive earthquakes in the most seismically prepared nation on earth. If that was Portland, Goldfinger finished the sentence with a shake of his head before he finished with words, let's just say I would rather not be here. So if you're like me and live near the Cascadian coastline, then you've also done the mental math. We are in that sweet spot. And by some estimates, it could happen 200 years from now. If all this earthquake talk has got you worried, the best vessel for anxiety is preparation. Have a go bag with essential supplies in the back of your car or in your garage and heed the words of experts. In most cases, there won't be an official warning for a tsunami. The earthquake is the warning. Move inland and uphill and wait for further direction. I wanted to give you a little more information about those ghost forests in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California that they cited in that amazing article. If you want to see evidence of that long ago quake, there's a handful of those ghost forests in, um, you know, those states that I mentioned. So if you want to check them out, the first one, the ghost forest of Copalis, is at Copalis Crossing in Washington. This grove of red cedars was discovered by Brian Atwater and David Yamaguchi. It can be reached by canoe or kayak, like the um, author of the article did with them, from this informal launch site in the middle of the town of Copalis Beach. The road access is by a gated private road, so please be respectful of that private property. 
The second ghost forest is the Neskawin Ghost Forest, and it lies in a town with the same name on Oregon's Tillamook Coast. Yeah, Tillamook like the cheese. For centuries, this forest of Sitka spruce stumps were little more than a local rumor because they hid beneath the waters, peeking above the surf every few decades or so. Then in the winter of 97 and 98, the coast was pummeled by storms that eroded away sands and exposed those ghost forests. The stumps were carbon dated to 2,000 years old and stood a massive 150 to 200 feet tall when they were living. Now, though, they share the beach with tide pools and marine life. Visit the Niskawan Beach State Recreation Site near Proposal Rock, and it's best viewed at low tide. The beach is a five-minute walk from the public lot, and I put the links in the show notes so you can get there easily. The importance of these discoveries is hard to overblow. But another team of researchers from the University of Arizona, they sought out trees that had endured the quake and survived. Sure enough, they found old-growth Douglas firs in a stand within Mike Miller State Park, almost a mile from shore in South Beach, Oregon. The tree rings there verified the 1700 earthquake and tsunami, and that tree growth ceased for a year after the event. Then when the salty groundwater receded and it was replaced with good old-fashioned rain, the trees continued to grow. Using their evidence, the evidence found in those trees, it's been helping to confirm the tsunami modeling and action plans that will help limit or avoid casualties and deaths for any of these future events. The 1700 Cascadia earthquake felt like the perfect subject for Cascadia's debut. This mega quake illustrates just one of the powerful unknowns that bubble below the surface of this strange stretch of topography. As LiDAR technology pulls back the layers of evergreens and ice and snow, what other eye-popping discoveries are lying in wait to be found? We live in a time when So many are arrogant about our technological prowess and intelligence, but the truth is there's a lot out there that remains a mystery and some that's downright inaccurate and screams to be revisited with fresh eyes. And although, yes, we are capable, the bare naked truth is all that isn't enough to put us in the driver's seat of our destiny. Our future has a load of variables, whether it's a mega quake, a comet strike, solar flares, or a hundred other could-be events. Our tomorrow is up to the mercy of nature. Yes, nature is powerful. It's also wondrous and magical. Just a moment spent in a forest or at the edge of a riverbed shrinks our egos and heals our souls. I hope Cascadia inspires you to dust off your backpack and venture into the wild. Who knows what mysteries lie ahead on the trail? If you happen to encounter something supernatural, drop us a line at curious underscore cat underscore podcast at iCloud.com. Maybe your story will be featured in an upcoming episode. 
We're exploring the rumor-riddled Cascade Mountain Range, a land of fire and ice. From Sasquatch to UFOs to remote viewing to bottomless pits to unexplained missing persons to ancient battles over good and evil. Find new episodes on the regular Curious Cat stream. Original art for Cascadia by Nora's unnamed photos. If you're in need of those services, find their links in the show notes. Be safe out there. And until next time, stay curious. I love you. Mm -hmm.